10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Welcome into a very special edition of the Warehouse Podcast. I'm Tyler. I'm Jesse. I'm just amazed at that introduction. We need to put something <laughs> like that together. But as a side note, I'm Eli. <laughs> yeah, this show already has way more production budget than we've ever put into our podcast. But the reason this is a special edition is because this is actually being broadcast over on the Birdland Tonight slash Birdland Sports streams on all their different social media um, we'll get into what that is in just a second, but first what we want to do is introduce ourselves to the Birdland tonight folks and kind of let you get to know us a little bit. So like I said, I'm Tyler and we are the Warehouse Podcast. We're a three-man podcast that I think this is going to be our fourth season or third season. Something like that. Um, do, we've gone on, we've yeah. undergone a few iterations of the show. Um, it used to be Jesse and I and a, and a fellow named Marcus, and now it is Eli and uh, Jesse, Eli, Jesse, you want to explain what your relationship is with Eli, maybe? Yeah, so Eli is my younger brother. Uh, he learned, uh, he's my student in baseball and, uh, you know, has been my student in baseball for a long time. Okay. Uh, but now, uh, now uh, I guess I learned from him a lot. And uh, But he's two years younger than me. Um, you know, we've grown up together. And um, yeah. Yeah, Eli, do you care to rebut any of that about him, you know, teaching you baseball and you being the Padawan to his, you know, Jedi master? We actually, you can ask my mom, we actually have a lot of stories from when I was younger on the order of like four years old, Jesse's six, and like he's throwing me pop flies in the backyard. And my mom comes out, she's like, Eli, why don't you throw some to Jesse? And I turn around and I go, Mom. Jesse knows all this already. <laughs> I'm the one who has to train <laughs> or something like that. Uh, so that's kind of always been the relationship, but uh, I don't buy into it anymore. I'm, uh, I'm 26 years old and I think I've grown up a little bit. So, Yeah, it worked yeah. out all right. You did end up playing, for those that don't, you did play Division II college baseball. Uh, Jesse and I did not do that. Mm. So, you know, you bested us in those things. So yeah, I did that. All that, all those pot flies in the backyard uh, paid off a little bit. Yeah, right. As my pitcher only <laughs> As a, yeah. career As unfolded. A <laughs> yeah, that's, well, hey. You, you there's, gotta, some, there's some foul balls, you know, yeah. you, have to, you have to run over to. Yeah, know. true. Usually they tell pitchers to get away, get out of the, get out of the way, but uh, not you, Eli. You can handle those. We know that. You can. Um, but yeah, we, we are a, we're a weekly podcast ish. We try to do it weekly. Um, so, you know, check us out on the different podcast platforms on social media. It's all at the warehouse pod. Um, give us a follow and, uh, yeah, we would really appreciate it. When the season comes around, we're generally pretty, yeah. pretty good. I would say. Yeah. The off season is a little up and down, uh, for some background. I have a not almost eight month old son, um, Jesse works and goes to school. Eli is working full time. Eli, I think, is literally a rocket scientist. I don't know if that's your job title, but that's basically what you do. Um, I'm so, a launch engineer is what we call okay. it. Rocket scientist sounds <laughs> sounds better on a business card, I think. Um, but yeah, during the season, we do try to do um, weekly. And, you know, if you're following Birdland tonight or Birdland Sports, you kind of know what's up here. The plan over here is going to be to do some post game shows. Uh, throughout the season. Uh, we're going to contribute to that as well as a bunch of other podcasts in the Orioles, um, you know, podcast world. And it won't always be all three of us on here, but we're going to try and contribute throughout uh, throughout the season or 
we're looking forward to it. Shockingly, we are looking forward to the 2021 season. I know it doesn't seem, it seems hard to believe. Eli, you were texting us the other day saying you feel like you said you felt an interesting uh, <laughs> tinge of emotion. Yeah, it was, uh, it was this thing. It started with an O and it's called optimism. <laughs> and yeah. it was a pretty weird thing. You know, my optimism is relative on the grand scheme of baseball because I think, you know, we got a chance to be a 65-70 win team. And on the larger scale of things, that's obviously it, – it leaves something to be desired. But from where we're coming from, I think that would be pretty delightful. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's been a pretty positive spring. I know Jesse doesn't share our optimism, I feel well, like. Well, no, I do. Our optimism is the Orioles don't lose 100 uh, ga- games. I think it's uh, a little but, higher than that. Mm-hmm. But we're going to get into that next week, actually. Right. So if you do subscribe, because we've got another week until the season starts, next week is going to be our like season preview pod, which I'm sure a lot of a lot of podcasts on here are going to be doing. But if you want to get like win-loss totals, predictions for the season, go subscribe to us, and we'll talk about that stuff uh, next week. Right. Cool. All right. So what we're going to do today is we're basically Eli kind of said it succinctly to us uh, via text and stuff before we were getting ready. We're kind of going to do like a state of the Orioles type of thing, because this week, a lot of a lot of news has come out about, um, you know, the rebuild and and positivity, like optimism, positivity, all these these good words uh, surrounding the Orioles this week. We're going to get into all of that. But before we do that. (laughs) We have to drag Jesse a little bit because what we did, <laughs> what we well, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say uh, time, uh, give it a few weeks and then we might be in different situations. Yeah, you may, but, you may be totally right. In right. Exactly. Said about right. This. So basically what we did last week, go check out last week's episode to get the full story here. But what we did was we tried to predict what the opening day lineup is going to look like. We won't go through who we all had in there, but there were none of us had the exact same lineup. They were all slightly different. So what we did on our on our Twitter page, um, the Warehouse Pod on Twitter plug. Uh, I posted a graphic on there of our three different lineups, and then put a poll question: Whose lineup do you think is most similar to what the Orioles would go with on opening day? And there were three choices. Obviously, the three of us, and then one was they're all wrong. So the the person we only got ten total votes. So this is not a huge sample. Okay. Uh, out of all of Orioles, I think family. it accurately represents, you know, what <laughs> it's probably fair. Think, you know, so of the ten votes, Eli received four of the votes. That was a weird move, uh, and then the best I could do in a seat, you know, sitting here, yeah, having to stay on the screen. Tied for second place was me with three votes, and they're all wrong with three votes. <laughs> so now, if you do the math in your head, four <laughs> plus three plus three is ten. That is the entirety. Of the votes. So, Jesse, you received zero votes. I didn't even vote for me. I didn't vote either. Right. Eli, yeah. Eli did you vote? I did not vote. No. Okay. So, no, I'm being honest. Jesse's, Jesse's definitely being honest. I, I could have stacked it a little you bit to, to make myself you, look a little and, better. but And there were um, no rules against it. You, right. You know, you can vote for yourself in, in, in elections, in politics. Right. Why couldn't you vote yourself in Twitter polls? But right. you chose not to. Yeah. That's respectable. And you got no votes. So, you know, do you want to defend yourself at all? Do you think, tell us why the people are wrong? No, I, I feel very good about it. I feel very confident. Um, you know, there are a couple question marks that I have when I filled it out. And, uh, you know, nothing's definite. People could get hurt. You know, like we really don't know definitively. But I feel very, very good about, about my lineup. And I think it would be a good lineup. Yeah, I mean, you were the only one that had Pat Valeka in the lineup. You were the only one that had Michael Franco in the lineup. 
which those might end up being accurate. Yeah. So yours may be right, but right now everyone thinks you're very dumb. And like I said, you know, when I filled out the lineup, you know, I was trying not to win a popularity contest. I was trying to accurately reflect what the opening day lineup will be. So I'm not too stressed about so, it. So I just want to, I want to latch onto that for one second. So, you know, Jesse claims that he wasn't winning a popularity contest and I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out, you know, it seems like he's, taking that angle to point out that one of either Tyler or myself right. was trying to win a popularity contest. And I just want to know who that was. You know, I think we, you know, we're all grown ups yeah. here. We're not four and six years old in the backyard. I think you can, you know, say what you want to say here. I No, I don't think anybody was <laughs> trying to win a popularity contest, but okay. Uh, so then I specifically, <laughs> but I did not construct my lineup for votes. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Neither did well, I. I mean, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I included Rio Ruiz in there. Like, that's not necessarily who I want to see in the lineup. Like, it's just that contract situations. It was very analytical, very analytical. Rio <laughs> Ruiz, I think, will be in there. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't we're, know. We're going to find out. We're going to find out. You, you go go yeah. check out our lineups on uh, our Twitter at the warehouse. Be a scroll, but go check it out. And, you know, you can't vote in the poll anymore, but you can certainly respond to us and retweet it with your poll or, or your uh your lineup suggestions or predictions rather. All right, anything else to talk about with the lineups? No, I mean, if if they do that, they are going to have the benefit of a week's more knowledge that's true. when they do that. But yeah, that's true. Like the, the Michael Franco situation, I think has developed a little mm-hmm. bit and we're going to talk about that in a bit. There's been some injury news that has developed, which could change my lineup <clears throat> a little bit. So right. we'll get into that a little later. We're not going to rehash the lineups too much, but we will talk about some changes this week. Right. Um, okay, Eli, we're going to move on. Because I don't feel like you've got any more points. I feel like we did a pretty good job there. Um, so the first thing we want to talk about is this came out. I'm doing the pray hands a lot. I got to stop doing that. Um, what we're first going to talk about is an article that came out on Yahoo Sports on, I believe, Monday uh, from Hannah Kaiser, where she talked to all of the GMs throughout the AL East. And obviously for the Orioles, that is the one and only Mike Elias. And he had a couple of interesting quotes, I think, in there that I had the article pulled up here. Let's find it where he basically defends, um, not defends, but kind of explains his approach um, to the Orioles uh, and this rebuild, because what what has happened a lot is that people have kind of uh, decried the Orioles for sort of this full-scale rebuild approach um, to to, to making a winning team. Rather than kind of building off what you have, the Orioles sort of tore it all down and – and started everything anew and rebuilding the organization. So here's his quote I want to read that I think is important. Um, She basically asked, um, she says, it seems like what you're saying is something that a lot of people on the outside have started to notice and take issue with, which is that the more that teams are trying to emulate the rebuild, the harder it is to do it, which means more teams that are just sort of languishing. How do you avoid that? And Elias said, I think the important thing to me is this is not something that you can or should do willfully. This is not a situation where we had an 81 and 81 team with a bunch of young talent right on the way. And we decided let's strip it down and bottom out in order to get to the next era. This was a team that had taken its competitive window to the max and in 2018 had a very rough season and was in need of significant investment internationally in the organization, in player development, in the infrastructure of how modern baseball operation departments run. It's a tall order. We are committed to those things, knowing that the foundation is necessary to success, especially nowadays and especially with the competition that we have. And there's no way to skip past this. 
So this is not something we ever want to see the Orioles organization go through again. We think it's possible to avoid this, yada, yada, yada. But I think sort of the, the bullet points there is this wasn't a situation where we could have just rebuilt from what we already had. It was sort of a disaster. We needed to tear it down to the studs, put in the, the infrastructure we needed. And also, hey, we don't plan to ever do this again. Once it's done, we're done doing it. And we plan to be a competitive baseball team year in and year out. So, Eli, maybe I'll go to you first to to get your sort of take on what you, you know, that quote and other quotes within the piece, you know, what did you sort of uh, take from that and any any uh, sort of reflections you have on, on Elias's latest quote there? Yeah, I, you know, I think that like when Michael Elias was first brought on to the Orioles, you know, there was a sense that he was brought on to execute this plan, you know, to go in, to tear everything down to the studs, like you said, and do what the Astros had just done that made them such a wildly successful organization. And so to hear him, you know, an architect of the modern rebuild, you know, somebody who has exemplified and excelled at this, you know, this path um, to hear him say that it's not something you want to do <laughs> is pretty reassuring, you, you know, like, uh, and, you know, to hear that he really truly believes and we are seeing this play out with the Astros to a certain extent, but he believes that we are building a recipe for sustained success, you know, through our player development pipelines, uh, you know, through some international investment, through all sorts of stuff. Um, and, you know, like, as we'll get into a little later, you know, like we are starting to see some signs of improvement. Uh, and I believe, I believe, him. you know, I, we see all these teams, you know, you look at someone like the Pirates and they've just been awful, you know, like they were a borderline team in 2016 or so, you know, I think they won 90 games and didn't make the playoffs, but, you know, they've never had a payroll even approaching a hundred million dollars. I don't think their largest contract is still Jason Kendall, you know, from like 2001. So, you you know, we're in a situation where we are not that, and you know, the Orioles have some resources, but right now this is the path to success where we really do tear down and build up from there. And hopefully, you know, with the financial resources that we do have as a kind of mid-market team and with the groundwork that we're laying right now, we should be able to create some sustained success. Yeah. Jesse, you want to? Yeah. Um, what I would say, well, first of all, just responding to your point about Elias um, making the comment about this isn't something you want to do. Um, I mean, it sounds pretty standard. Like, of course, nobody wants to do that. It's kind of, empathizing or trying to demonstrate some empathy with the fans. Right. Um, So I wouldn't read too much into that. Um, But what I, what I would say is anybody who watched Buck Walters final season of the Baltimore Orioles uh, should know exactly the situation (laughs) that Michael Elias was inheriting and how he felt, um, you know, things had to proceed based upon the current situation and the current condition of the Baltimore Orioles. This was a team that decided to make the centerpiece of the future, Chris Davis and his $150 million plus contract. And this was after the contract was already signed. The Orioles were stuck with the contract and uh, like that making him the centerpiece and then his performance is not any way, you know, 
towards any sort of path to success, right? So, I, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely uh, right that the Orioles were in a situation where legitimately rebuild was their only option. We were at the bottom and we had to build from the bottom up. Um, and the, the idea is, of course, nobody ever wants to do a rebuild. It's a painful process. It, it takes a long time. It seems like there's no hope in sight for a long time. But over time and gradually, and the Orioles are starting to see this now, you see some flashes of hope. You see some uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, the Orioles are clearly going to emerge out of this thing, it seems to me, a pretty good baseball team year in and year out. And, the, the you know, nobody ever wants to rebuild Everybody wants to be somebody like the Tampa Bay Rays, right? Who just continually are competing for a second wild card spot, a wild card spot, or the division, who consistently find the right pieces, trade the right guys at the exact right moment, you know, finagle these other front offices to get exactly what they need. Everybody wants to be that. And, uh, that's kind of the vision for what Elias has moving forward to be a competitive year in and year out team. And to not, of course, at some point the Orioles will probably undergo another rebuild. But the idea is that we kind of keep it uh, some in some out and we keep it consistent. We balance immediate talent and future talent um, on a really effective level and we stay competitive all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, if we had sort of a, a Red Sox model of when the Red Sox are bad, they're, like, really bad. and But they're only bad for, like, a year. And then they bounce right back up to being an 85-90 win team World Series contenders. I think that's the goal. Not that we don't expect losing seasons. That's going to happen. But you can avoid the the 100 loss seasons, the 110 loss seasons, which is sounds crazy, but that's exactly what 2018 was. I mean, you know, we should give some credit to the Orioles, though, because, you know, from a major league perspective, from 2012 to 2016, the Orioles were, what, the winningest team in the, the American team. League. And what they did to get there was they traded a bunch of their young pieces to get talent that won now. That's like they traded away Eduardo, Eduardo Rodriguez, top three pitcher in a rotation. They traded away Josh Hader, who's one of the best relief pitchers in baseball. And, and I'm sure there's more guy. Um, what's his name with the he was with the Brewers for a long time. Zach Davies was a nice pitcher that they traded away. You know, this is what you've got to do. You're seeing it now with the Nationals. The Nationals have what is universally really re- re- uh, uh, looked at as a bottom uh, minor league system at the moment. But they have that because they won the World Series two years, traded pieces away to get there. They picked low in the draft. And now the result is a bad farm system. But because the Nationals are built a little bit different than the Orioles, they should be able to, to bounce back from that quicker than the Orioles would have been able to do a decade ago. You know, this is all about the infrastructure. Um, you know, the Orioles have been very transparent, and Elias even says that in the piece. The Orioles have been very transparent about what they're trying to do here. They're not making any bones about it. We are going to not spend a bunch on the major league front. We are going to um, invest in young players, in foreign players, with the hope that, like Jesse said, Eli said, we're going to become a year in and year out uh, juggernaut and a team to be reckoned with. And, you know, it, it needs to be said over and over again. You've got to repeat things so that people understand them. I think, I think Orioles fans get it. I don't, I don't feel like I hear the call coming from inside the house too much. People get it, but there's a lot of national talk about like, 
you know, why are the Orioles sucking so bad and why this is a disgrace. Whereas like there's other teams that are in far worse situations. The Colorado Rockies deserve 10 times the spite that the Orioles get. The Rockies are gutting the team and also not investing in the analytics or international or any of that stuff. So all hate the Orioles get, you know, it should be diverted to other organizations in my opinion. So I appreciate Elias sort of reaffirming and, and repeating what he's been saying already. And once we have a winning baseball team, we're going to prove that this was the way to go, I think. Well, so that, that kind of leads me to the next point, though, is what's your, he, you know, he basically said, like, this is the only path we really had. Do you buy that? Do you think this was, like, the only path the Orioles could have done? Absolutely. Okay. I, 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 there were no alternatives. I mean, of course, we could have just neglected the future entirely and put a little better baseball team together at the time, signed a bunch of free agents, spent a bunch of but like, what's what's the right. point in doing that, right? Um, the idea is to is to not have a good year or on any one given year to get the absolute maximum number of wins that you can. The goal is to create an organizational team that is going to be good consistently, and that that was the only way to create that. And the Orioles had so many limitations the previous team and from the previous era like this that you know there was only really yeah this was the Orioles only option okay Eli do you agree with that fully agree I mean you know you can make an argument for you can always go buy free agents and the Orioles are not a, a poverty franchise they have the money they've shown it in the past the Orioles used to pay payrolls in baseball now it was a different era it was 20 years ago but then even in the early 2000s, you know, 15 years ago, they had the whole offseason with Palmero, Javi Lopez, Miguel Tejada. Like the Orioles have shown a willingness to open up the checkbook and and write write a big check to some really good players. Um, but what did it get us? We had the one 2005 season that was really exciting for, you know, 80 games. Half a season. Yeah. <laughs> and then it fell apart. You know, that's not where we're at. And then they were they were terrible anyway <laughs> for the next, what, seven seasons. So, you know, I want that 2012 to 2016 feeling every decade for five or six years, you know, I'm okay with a couple losing seasons a decade, but I don't, I don't want to do this five year thing again. And I, and I appreciate Elias saying like, yeah, the plan is to never do this again. This sucks. We all agree that it sucks, but look, I helped this happen in, in Houston. They're pretty good now. Trash can or no trash can. We can do it again in Baltimore. Um, a little bit different, hopefully. So yeah, that's, that's about all I got on the Yahoo article. Anything else you guys want to add before we move on? I guess a little more authentically. Authentically? Yeah. What do you mean? In terms of the Orioles doing it better, uh, yeah, authentic, yeah. more authentically. We'll just hit the trash cans with crab mallets. <laughs> yeah, people don't, people don't forget, though. That's, there, was still, there was a story this week, I think, while Alex Bregman was batting at a spring training game, a, a security guard was banging a trash can or whatever. Right. That's right. I heard that, too. People don't forget. <laughs> An actual stadium employee. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to some, some positive news, more, more positive news, really. <clears throat> um. I think it came out like the day we released our last episode, but after we had recorded um, MLB pipeline, I think they're the last ones to release their rankings of the uh, different farm systems in major league baseball. I think it was, was a fan graphs or one of the big ones had the Orioles at seventh overall uh, pipeline has, Oh, I think it was baseball America had them seventh overall uh, pipeline released theirs. And they have the Orioles in as the fifth best farm system in Major League Baseball. We've got a quote here from Jim Callis who says, I know it's been rough for Orioles fans recently. The big league club has not been that good. That is an understatement. 
But better times are ahead. The farm system has some reinforcements on the way. Of course, it is led by number two overall prospect, Adley Rutschman, who I just saw today is almost the same odds to win rookie of the year this year as Ryan Mountcastle, which that's insane. That's not happening. That makes no sense whatsoever. Absolutely. And no mention of Ramon Urias at all. (laughs) He's a a rookie. He could win it. He could win it. Yeah. What about Keegan Aiken and Dean Kramer? I know. Well, we'll talk about them here in a second. but. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's big news. The Orioles are like a legitimate, really good farm system now. Like, how did you, I, I don't know, even know what to talk about here. How did you guys, Jesse, do you want to talk like how you feel about the Orioles having a, in MLB pipelines opinion, a top five farm system? I mean, it feels different than <laughs> we felt in the past because this was never the Orioles blueprint. And, um, yeah, this is further evidence of Elias doing a good job turning this thing around. Yeah. Eli. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, to say that we have five prospects in the top 100, you know, that's like the average if there were only 20 teams in the MLB, there are 30, you know. So we have that high level of talent. We're getting a lot of like good remarks for the depth, especially in terms of our pitching. Um, That's a credit to Chris Holt and Elias for the analytics that they've employed in our pitchers development, Um, you know, but on top of the Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall, We've got the Baumans, the Lothers, the Wells, you know, a lot of like high double AA, A, triple A types who are pretty close to the major leagues and pretty close to the major leagues in terms of talent. Um, so on top of that high upside farm system that we're developing and that the top 100, you know, list shows, we're actually developing some depth. And I think that might be the thing that's even more exciting to me is, you, you know, like it, it's a mystery how the Orioles are going to get through this year with the pitching staff that we have, but then at the same time, it's not a mystery at all because, you know, somebody gets hurt. One of those guys comes up, you know, somebody's struggling. Another one of those guys comes up, you know, we got three, four guys who are ready to step into the major leagues pretty much at any time. And uh, that's a definite credit to Elias, Chris Hall and the, the development pipeline as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's Matt. I think they did say that this is the highest the Orioles have ever been on MLB Pipeline. I think MLB Pipeline is only like maybe 15 or 20 years old. So it's not like, you know, a crazy lengthy, uh, you know, run of time there, but still really impressive. And I don't know, you know, what the correlation is between, you know, let's say what your pipeline ranking was three years ago to where you finished in the standings this year. But, you know, the Rays recently and still do have a really good um, uh, farm system, according to Pipeline. They were in the World Series last year. The Padres this year and recently have had a really good farm system. They are, you know, you could call them NL favorites. You know, the Dodgers are still there, but the Padres are right on their heels. You know, the Orioles at, you know, the the fifth best farm system, not saying they're going to be the fifth best team in baseball two years from now, but you would imagine that puts them on track to be a contender without a doubt in a couple of years, which is really encouraging. And your point about the pitching is, is a good one, Eli, that, you know, I think this year we can all agree is is probably going to be a pretty rough year for the pitching because yes, there's the young guys that can step in, but when will they step in? When are the Orioles really going to feel comfortable to turn to those guys? I'm not so sure when that's going to happen. I think we're going to see a lot of Matt Harvey, Felix Hernandez, if he's healthy, you might see some Wade LeBlanc in there, but these rankings kind of show, you know, that the Orioles have reinforcements on the way, like Callis said, and it's pretty high quality guys. You know, they're not all going to be Jacob deGrom, but you know, if you can have a bunch of three or fours in there and maybe one ace, you know, you've got a pitching staff that's better than anything the Orioles have had in what, 
20 years since Mike Messina left. I mean, Long time. seriously, <laughs> they had, they cobbled together a decent staff in 2014, but it wasn't any hot shots, you know? Right. Yeah. So pitching is a thing the Orioles haven't had. Like, I feel like my entire life. Right. And I mean, we're, we're closing in on 30 here, Jess. So yeah. it's a long enough time. <laughs> yeah. And, you guys are. Uh, and, well, you're in your mid twenties, Eli. You'll get there. And we haven't had we haven't had an ace, you know, since Messina, basically. I mean, Bedard so. was really good for one year. Yeah. And and Tillman made the All Star team, but you know, Tillman probably was still like a two right. on a good team. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, if if Dio Hall, Grayson Rodriguez turn into like legitimately like you know, you got to say top thirty pitchers in baseball. Right. That you have an ace, which is not something the Orioles have uh, had in, in a long time. Right. Um, okay, let's talk about those players real quick, because j- just real quick, we don't have to like think about it too much, but we talked about the top five guys, which, just so people are aware, Rutschman, uh, Adley Rutschman, Grayson Rodriguez, Heston Kerstad, D.L. Hall, and Ryan Mountcastle, in that order, are how Pipeline views the Orioles' top five prospects. All of them are in the top 100 of MLB Pipeline's overall rankings. So what I thought would be kind of interesting is, you know, is there another guy on this top 30 list that you maybe like a lot that, you know, it can be somebody everybody's talking about. It can be somebody that nobody's talking about. Is there one name in particular um, that really stands out to you? Now, Eli, you were saying a guy before we got on, do you want to go with that guy or are you having second thoughts? Definitely. Okay. I'll go to you. Uh, uh, what, do you what do you think? Yeah. I, I got to say Gunnar Henderson. I, I think that, um, you know, he's super young still, uh, but you saw him take a couple ABs in spring training. He's actually drawn some walks. Naturally, I saw him walk and then get picked off on like two pitches later. But still, uh, you know, seeing somebody come up and have the approach, you know, the like wherewithal, just the confidence to like stand in there, actually execute an approach and draw a walk for somebody who I think is 19 years old right now is a seriously impressive thing. Uh, people talk about him. They say his major league comp is Corey Seager. You know, he's got a smooth left-handed swing. They say he's a little bit big for shortstop, but he might be able to stick it. If nothing else, he'll move to third base. They say he's got a strong arm either way. Uh, And this is an easy answer because MLB Pipeline has him as our sixth best prospect, you know, just outside those top 100. Um, So I'm kind of cheating. But at the same time, like, I think he's so wildly exciting. You know, the Orioles haven't had a left side of the infield prospect that's been worth anything since Manny Machado. So seeing Gunnar Henderson... Uh, actually kind of making waves. People talk about him as a potential top 100 in the next two, three years or so. Uh, that, that that gets me going. Yeah, and he's been getting a lot of buzz this offseason. People are saying, like, if the list was 110, 120 guys, Henderson's probably on there. I think he's a guy that probably by the end of this season gets on the top 100 once people have uh, graduated from the top 100 list. So that's definitely one to, to keep an eye on. And, yeah, like you said, it's really exciting that – it's a left side of the infield or even just an infielder in general. I feel like the Orioles haven't had a good infield prospect. You know, I guess Mountcastle counts, although he's not in the infield anymore um, so for, for quite a while. Jesse, do you have one that sticks out to you? Yeah, okay. for me, um, I'm really excited about Eusenio Diaz. Um, he was the centerpiece of the Manny Machado trade. He is coming to the Baltimore Orioles uh, quickly. Um, I, I believe that this guy is going to be – playing in the major leagues, you know, is going to have a long, consistent career. Um, I feel like uh, he's, yeah, I feel like he's going to demonstrate a lot of consistency, a lot of reliability in the outfield. Um, and I think we're going to see him pretty soon. So uh, I'm really looking forward to him. Now, would you be okay if we see him because Anthony Santander is traded? 
Ooh. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'd have to like think about that more, I guess. Yeah. But um, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Off okay. the top, of yeah, my yeah. Head, no, yeah. it's a tough one. We'll see how yeah. Santander performs. Uh, yeah, for me, it's tough. There's a <laughs> lot of guys on here. Um, I want to pick a pitcher since you guys both picked hitters. So I think what I'm going to go with is that, Michael Baum. Mike, huh? That's, I was going to say, can I take a guess? Because I knew you'd go with him. Bauman, he's yeah, guy. He's been your guy. I was <laughs> thinking about Zach Lothar for a second just because he's one of those guys that's like a sneaky, good, like his numbers don't – or his like um, – he doesn't throw super hard, but he's got that super long stride and he's got the high spin rate and yada, yada, yada. But Bauman's just the guy that sits – the Elias regime came in. Chris Holt, like you mentioned, Bauman's like really taken off. His strikeout numbers have been up. Um, I think he's a guy that we probably see at some point this year. Um, I'm not sure, you know, where he's going to start. Probably Triple A because he spent um, time in Bowie back in 2019 and he was at the alternate camp this year. So I think he's a guy that you probably don't see him in April. But if he really dom well, and, and we don't have Triple A until May anyway. But if he really dominates in the early part of the season, I think. You know, he's a guy that you could you could slot in there. And I think I like him better as a prospect than than a Dean Kramer, than a Keegan Aiken. You know, these guys that are already here, I think Ballman might be a step above them. Pipeline disagrees. They have Ballman below Kramer. But um, based on things I know about them, um, I'm pretty excited about Ballman. So we'll see. I think the fact that we've had three different picks um, is a really positive sign. So, uh, yeah, it's not like there's one guy that's obvious. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, I think Henderson might be the most obvious one, but he's still not in the top 100. He's definitely under the radar still. Um, So, yeah, I mean, he's still very young. Yeah, it's a deep system. The Orioles have a deeper system where, you know, recent years, it's very top heavy. The Orioles, you you know, they've got 30 legitimate prospects here and and probably more than that. I think fan graphs, they rank like whoever they think has a real shot and they rank like 45 guys. So plus they had a list of like 15 more guys that they thought were intriguing. So there's depth there and uh, love to see it. All right. Anything else to add on prospects? Well, we're going to kind of keep talking about prospects here a little bit. So let's talk the big news yesterday. Uh, We're not going to spend too much time on this because it's so new, but the Orioles announced that they're developing, developing a training facility in the Dominican Republic. It's going to be a 22 and a half acre state of the art facility uh, to be completed sometime next year. um, And just kind of staying on the Dominican train in that 30 prospects that we just talked about, the Orioles actually had two, uh, international signings. Uh, I don't know. How, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but uh, Michael Hernandez, I think, and Samuel Basalo, um, who are that at 22nd. Basayo. Basayo. I took French in high school. Fun fact. I took French. I took Spanish. I got you. <laughs> um, they are now at 22nd and 28th, respectively, on that list. So you know, we don't know a ton about what makes a good Dominican Republic. Uh, training facility, but just like, you know, Eli, maybe I'll go to you first again. Sort of what was your reaction to this news that the Orioles were were going to be building this huge facility uh, in the Dominican? Yeah, I wanted to throw out one clarification. You said two international signings, and the operative word that Tyler missed is two seven-figure international signings. Right. Like, the Orioles never signed guys to anything over a million dollars. We had two of them. They're both, like, pretty legitimate prospects. As Tyler said, they just slotted into our top 30 already and they're teenagers. Um, The dude Basayo, like we signed him and he was, he had just made the cutoff. He still wasn't 16 years old yet. Uh, And Hernandez they're talking about has like the projectability of like Carlos Correa or Alex Rodriguez when they were his age. So (laughs) uh, yeah, I I mean, it's high praise, high praise. 
Um, Maybe we should have picked one of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. but we won't know about them for like three or four years at least. At least, yeah. Um, But yeah, so like my general reaction, you know, uh, the Orioles had totally like the the only reason the Orioles accrued international free agent money was to use it as trade bait for some like you know quadruple A you know high minors low major leagues guy that they would just slot in somewhere that would fade into oblivion and that was the only reason we got international signing money it, it you know for years and years under McPhail under Duquette it just was not a thing and you know, you look around and it's like, all right, who are the three most exciting players in the game? The three dudes totally revolutionizing this game right now. The answer is Fernando Tatis Jr., Ronald Acuna, and Juan Soto. You you know, it's like those three guys are the, you know, the Mike Trout, Manny Machado, and Bryce Harper from 2011 or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. These guys are just revolutioning the game or revolutionizing the game. And they're so exciting. They're all like 20 to 22 years old. And they're all international prospects who have turned into these budding superstars. And I'm not saying that, you know, oh, Hernandez or Basayo is going to turn into that right away. But by cutting ourselves off from that market entirely, we lose the opportunity to get one of these generational talents, you know. And it, it just, it never made any sense. We were never getting anything super valuable out of, trading away this, you know, the spending money. And it's super exciting to me to just, you know, show that the Orioles are committing. Um, For those who like don't really follow it as much, the way that the international signings kind of work is, you know, the signings open up on this one day and it's, if you're old enough, you're allowed to sign. And pretty much everybody who's any, like, you know, any caliber of prospect already knows where they're going to sign before that day comes, you know, it's not like a true free agency, so to speak. They've been working out at these facilities that, you know, teams have in the DR and all over the, you know, all over Latin America, they've been working out at these facilities. They know these teams, the teams know them, and they've developed these relationships well ahead of time. So the Orioles being able to do this, put a, you know, brand new state of the art facility down there, get something exciting, you know, just have something to say, come play with us. You know, like this is where you want to come train right now. And then we'll develop this relationship with you and hopefully sign you eventually. Um, It's just, it's putting our best foot forward. And I think that is the most encouraging thing you can say. Yeah. And I mean, it should be said, like, while this isn't Elias's first, um, you know, chance as an, as the Orioles GM to sign international free agents, like you were saying, Eli, they, these guys know where they're going sometimes a year or two before they really go there when they're 14, 15 years old, which is a little creepy. I'll say like from the Orioles, maybe perspective of five, 10 years ago, it's a little bit of a weird process. You're like wooing teenagers, but at the same time, is it any different than like colleges and, you know, college football, college basketball, they kind of do the same sort of a thing. Or like the army or the military. For sure. I mean, (laughs) and in this case, you're giving them sometimes millions of dollars, sometimes a lot less, but you're giving them a job and you're paying them a set, you know, yeah, whatever. But this was kind of Elias's first chance to sign free agents after having established a foothold with the Orioles in the Dominican Republic. Uh, Kobe Perez, I believe, is, is the guy who runs things for the Orioles. Um, he's been really instrumental in all this, you know, because it's not just the Dominican Republic. It's, you know, all over the place. This is the money allocated for all of international signings, except for some of the weird like posting stuff that happens with 
uh, with the Asian players. That's a different situation. But no, I think this is uh, this is huge. Jess, did you have any general reactions? Yeah, I mean, I think what you kind of hinted at is really interesting. Um, whether this kind of is a predatory system in a way, uh, I think is a really interesting conversation to have. And uh, not one I'm exactly prepared to do at the moment, <laughs> but um, it is a really interesting conversation to um, think about. And people, I think, should be aware and yeah. shouldn't just turn a blind eye to this potential issue. Um, I mean, I think that's that is part of what kept the Orioles out of out of it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, you, you know, you can say a lot of things about ownership, but there are some like ethical things that the Angelos is in mind. You know, go back to the player strike of the mid. The Orioles were like the team that was like, no, we're not, we're not fielding replacement players. Like these guys have a union. We signed a deal. So, you know, right. the Orioles are, are an organization with some ethics, but yeah, continue. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, not looking at that for right. a moment. Um, <laughs> you know, what I would say is kind of like Eli talked about. I think it just further demonstrates our commitment. And of course, uh, any team trying to compete, uh, in this Major League Baseball uh, era, uh, needs to be uh, accessing talent from all over the world, particularly the Dominican Republic. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it, it is uh, a demonstration of what Elias has been saying. Um, and this is him actually uh, taking action uh, to – uh, to solidify the Orioles' presence in the in the Dominican Republic. Absolutely. It's, it's said in the news story that this has been in the works for a while, and I would imagine it was something that got brought up in um, Elias' interview, uh, what was that, 20, end of 2018 when he came on, on board. So, yeah, it's cool to see it um, coming to fruition, and um, you know, I'm sure they'll make some cool marketing video uh, next year sometime when it's built, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, all right, moving on to some guys that are already here in the organization – Um, The Orioles are expected to have three prospects that aren't all entirely homegrown, um, but three rookies this year that are expected to have a really big um, impact on the 2021 team. And that is Ryan Mountcastle, Keegan Aiken, and Dean Kramer. They could be joined by the likes of a Ballman or a Lothar or a Diaz. But for now, we know these are the three that are definitely going to be here. Um, You know, they're going to they're going to use up their rookie eligibility this year. So I I kind of just wanted to talk about these three guys and see if we have any feelings about them. And, you know, are are they more than guys that are just going to be here for for a short time to take up some space and maybe trade in a couple of years? Or, you know, do you think of these three, you know, which of them, all of them? are going to take part in the next competitive Orioles team and what kind of like role do you expect them to have? Do you want to start? I, yeah, I can. Okay. Um, so I think the surest bet on this list, of course, is Ryan Mountcastle that is going to be on the next competitive Orioles team. Um, when looking at Aiken and Kramer, I think they both have very solid chances of having some role on the Orioles, on the next Orioles team, uh, on the next competitive Orioles team. Um, So I think they both have solid shots at it. Whether they are going to be starting rotation pieces is something I'm a lot less sure about, but I feel like um, they do definitely have the potential to, um, to play a role in uh, the Orioles success moving forward. Um, If I was to be more sure about one of them, I would think Kramer is more likely um, to definitely, to definitely be around uh, in the future. 
But, I mean, I'm definitely not sleeping on Keegan Aiken. Uh, I definitely think he has the the potential to play some important role uh, for the Orioles moving forward. Definitely. Uh, Eli, do you have uh, similar thoughts? Yeah, I, I actually align perfectly. Um, I think Mountcastle is a safe bet. I think his bat's going to play. I think that's hard to argue with after what he showed us last year. Um, I think that Dean Kramer sort of just has a higher ceiling. You know, he's got some pretty electric stuff, especially that little cutter slider he's been developing. Uh, he's got the mid-90s fastball with the wipeout breaking ball along with that cutter. Uh, Aiken is a phenomenal pitcher in his own right. Don't get me wrong. You know, I think he is going to come along nicely. I think he's going to be a nice little like three, four starter in the major leagues. Um, but I think he just has less upside just because he doesn't have that electricity to his stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, Aiken is kind of an interesting one that I almost see some value in him as maybe like a, a bullpen piece because he does strike out guys. Um, he's a guy that I feel like struggles to get some, some length in the game. And I think maybe you put him in the, in the bullpen full time and say like, focus on these three outs and he could ramp it up a little bit. Whereas I don't know if I, if I see that from Kramer, I think Kramer's a better rotation fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I see him as like a back end. I could see him as like a Chris Tillman type, um, you know, maybe with, uh, I think that's fair. Chris Tillman was a pretty good pitcher. So maybe not quite yeah. as much upside as yeah. Chris Tillman, maybe, maybe a, a notch below Chris Tillman, but I could see him as a back end rotation piece. Aiken as a really nice bullpen piece. And then yeah, Mountcastle, I think ultimately is this team's first baseman when they're good. And that's kind of like a heartbreaking thing to say because I, Aaron Mancini, um, but I don't know that the timeline's not lining up correctly. I think he's a guy that becomes a really easy piece in the off season. Um, if not before that, he's going to have a year, a little more maybe of, of team control left a good bat who could go into any lineup, I think, in the league, especially the American League with the DH um, and maybe the NL next year if the DH is back. Um, I think any any team would want Trey Mancini. So I think Mountcastle ultimately is this team's um, is this team's first baseman just because there's so much outfield talent currently on the Orioles and in the minor league system uh, with Diaz coming up that I think you got to kind of make room. And he doesn't really play a good left field anyway. So, yeah, I think all three of them could have a role. Um, Mountcastle for sure. I think Aiken – could have a good spot as a, as a bullpen piece and teams always need those. And uh, Kramer, we'll see. Um, I want to throw out on the, on the 0% chance that Michael Elias is listening to this podcast right now. (laughs) That is not a warehouse pod endorsement of trading Trey Mancini. No, no, no. We hate that thought in every way, shape and form. And the city of Baltimore will revolt. That is all I wanted to say. Right. Well, yeah, and, and I also don't know how much Trey Mancini is, is a, isn't worth in a trade, you know, so that, that comes into effect too. But okay. I mean, if, it, just, if he comes back to 290 with 35 bombs, that's worth a lot. That's true. That's yeah. true. That's true. And he's a good story. He's a good guy. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's valuable. Yeah. All right. So just looking at like from a 10,000 foot view of the Baltimore Orioles right now compared to where they were, you know, the fall of 2018 when Mike Elias came over, how are we feeling? about the rebuild. Uh, Eli, you put this on the outline. So you want to kind of kick us off with how you're feeling about the state of the Orioles? Yeah. You know, I I was planning on saying more, but I think we've outlined it. And for all the reasons we just talked about, I feel good. I feel very good. I I think, uh, I think everything is moving in the right direction and I am content. (laughs) A man, a few words, Uh, Jesse, (laughs) similar thoughts. No, I mean, Definitely more optimistic, definitely more optimistic when the, than when the rebuild started. Um, I think 
definitely you can look at the farm system like we just spent a bunch of time talking about. Um, and the farm system, if you're looking for optimism, the first place you would look is, well, what's, what is the farm system like? And the Orioles have a really good one. So I think the other thing to look at is there are a lot of guys that are kind of outperforming expectations. And that is a really good sign, too, uh, because something about, uh, you know, the Orioles coaching, something about the uh, the environment that these guys are playing within, um, something there are forces that are making the players overperform or uh, put something together or, um, you know, make some sort of connection that makes them a better baseball player. Um, so just the fact that that is kind of uh, the environment and the feeling that the players have, and it seems like an optimistic and a, a hopeful type of uh, environment, um, definitely it's going to be tough maybe for a couple years, but um, definitely more exciting than uh, than where we were at. And we see the progress. Like the progress is actually happening. It's It's before our eyes. It's not something hypothetical at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with what you guys are saying. There's really, there's not much I can nitpick about what Mike Elias has done to this point for your, you know, to your point there, Jesse, it's, it's become tangible. We can see it on the field. We can see it in reflected in rankings from Baseball America, MLB Pipeline, that scouts around the world, around the country, however you want to view it, the Orioles farm system is getting better. The Orioles have improved win-wise since Elias has taken over at the major league level. So it's not a complete you know, catastrophe up there either. And now they're they're in uh, investing in the right places or, or what seems like the right places. So, you know, it sucks. The losing sucks, but I think things are going in the right direction. Um, I think the Orioles will avoid 100 losses this year. And, you know, depending on where the Red Sox are at, it, it, I don't think the Orioles will be, will be run over this year. So I think things are getting better overall. Um, yeah, and I'm eyeing 2023 as the, the year the Orioles really get back into – the playoff picture. I don't know if they'll make the playoffs, but I think um, they'll be in the conversation, which, you know, that's a five-year turnaround time. I think that's uh, reasonable given everything that's happened. All right. So let's move on um, to some, some more, you know, high level stuff here, Eli, I'll kind of throw it to you because it's a little complicated and you read through some of the details and you're the smartest one. So, you know, (laughs) run us through some information. here. All right. Yeah. I'm i I'm just going to kind of blitz through it and I figure we can have a little bit of a longer discussion at the end. Uh, so there's an article in the Washington Post this previous week by Thomas Boswell, and he kind of he kind of lays out some pieces and then gives a synopsis at the end. So I'll kind of do it the same way. Uh, so these puzzle pieces, basically, number one, the Orioles and Nationals have been having these legal battles over Masson for years and years and years. Uh, Mid Atlantic Sports Network, for those of you who don't watch the Orioles. <laughs> Why are you here if you don't watch the Orioles? You're very lost. You're very lost. Yeah, so you know the Orioles have the controlling stake in the company. When the Nats were becoming a team in the early 2000s, this was one of the things that the Angelosis negotiated. You know, they said you're taking away part of our fan base. You know, you're hurting us financially, and so the Orioles got the controlling stake to the TV rights. Um, and so the Nats are currently, well, not currently. They have sued them for about $100 million uh, in losses between 2012 and 16 because the Orioles are being manipulative because everything's a business. Um, The Nationals have won those lawsuits. The Orioles have continued to appeal. Most recently, uh, the New York Supreme Appellate Court 
uh, ruled against the Orioles in 2019. Now the Orioles are appealing again naturally. But at the same time, the (laughs) Orioles have set aside about $100 million uh, in escrow. So they are tucking the money aside. They are expecting to lose. And it's probably just a matter of time until they do. Yeah. Next puzzle piece. So Peter (laughs) Angelos, the Orioles owner. uh, Also, if you're not an Orioles fan, Peter Angelos. um, He is 91. Uh, Allegedly. We haven't seen him in a while, but he's around. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, He's been fading in health. Uh, His sons have largely taken over the day-to-day operations of the team. Um, There have been a number of investment groups kind of amassing all around, expecting the Angeloses to sell. Um, that being said, capital gains taxes on the Orioles would go down significantly once the elder Angelos passes away, which is a factor, as crappy as that is. Um, and the other thing I want to say is that the MLB came out and made a comment saying that in the next ownership group of the Baltimore Orioles, they would like to see Cal Ripken, um, huh. which, you know... They, the MLB doesn't usually publicly comment on something like this, especially when the team hasn't formally expressed an interest in being sold. Um, So that was interesting to see. So it feels to me like there's some background movement there, you know, that somebody's talking to somebody and it's just not, it's not in the press yet. Um, That being said, uh, John Angelos, the son who's more involved with the Orioles uh, was, being interviewed about the Orioles, you know, the question came up of, you know, are you selling? Da 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 da. And he said, the Orioles are staying in Baltimore. We're a Baltimore team. They've been in Baltimore for 66 years. They will be for 66 more. Da 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 da. He said all this stuff, but he didn't really make a comment on whether the Orioles are being sold or not. Um, right. Which was the interesting thing to me. So, the final puzzle piece. Uh, if you don't know the creation story. Uh, you know, the origin story between Birdland tonight. Uh, basically what's happening, Masson has been talking about cutting their pre and post game shows after a lot of public outrage. They've kind of been going back on that. Um, they're not going to do the full 30 minute pre and post. However, they've been letting go of a number of popular names, the Orioles, Gary Thorne. Um, and they've been going and just kind of cutting costs wherever possible. Uh, they've been reducing the number of spring training games that they've been broadcasting. Uh, and ha- they hadn't actually committed to broadcasting any spring training games until over halfway through spring training. Um, I think the second and final Orioles game was broadcast today. Is uh, I think it's tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Okay. Okay. My bad. But still um, disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are two nationals games. And if you want to hear us, talk more about how they missed an opportunity to broadcast Trey Mancini's return to an MLB field. You can go listen to a previous episode of the warehouse pod. Um, Anyway, so all of this comes together and this uh, journalist, Thomas Boswell, he says the Angelos are probably angling to minimize costs, maximize revenue before putting the team up for sale formally. Um, He says the obstacles to that potential sale are that mass and dispute the CBA negotiations and higher taxes as a result of the oldest Angelos still being alive. That being said, the Orioles have set aside that money. The CBA is up uh, for negotiation after this year. And well, I won't speak ill of the elder Angelos, but um, 
He's old. All of these probably are going to be wrapped up within the next couple of years. So the big question here is, do we expect the Orioles to be sold in the next couple of years? I mean, it's definitely possible. And I mean, I think that the quote from John Angelos, you had mentioned about how, you know, the team's not moving, which I do believe that. I don't think this team is going anywhere. Nashville, whatever people can talk. I think MLB might expand in Nashville. I don't think the Orioles are going there. Um, the fact that he didn't specifically say, like, we're going to keep owning the team, you know, and, and all this other stuff, it's definitely a possibility. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that I hate that. I don't love it. I, I'm not one of those guys that is a – I don't blame Angelos, the Angelos family, for all that ails the Orioles. I think a lot of it – it's a lot of different factors. Um, so, no, I think it's definitely a possibility. Uh, yeah, and, and the fact that there's been so much confusion in – who is doing things these last few years. MLB wanted clarification on what was going on. MLB is kind of getting involved now a little bit. You know, Cal Ripken hasn't always had the best relationship with the Angeloses and the Orioles franchise organization since leaving uh, the playing field, you know, 20 years ago. Um, you know, and they want to get sort of that, those good feelings of, of the Cal Ripken era back in. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a possibility. And, uh, you know, teams teams get sold sometimes. Um I just would imagine there would be some sort of stipulation there that, you know, they need to be Baltimore based, which I think brings the Cal Ripken uh, component into it. And, um, you know, that they're not leaving uh, Maryland. Uh, Jess, what do you think about it? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely possible. Um, I I think with, obviously with Peter, uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, maybe dying soon. (laughs) You're trying to find Um, a nice way to say that. Well, yeah. I mean, I I also, (laughs) he's going to die. Yeah, I know, I know. I hear you. But like with with yeah, with him uh, potentially dying soon, he bought the team, right? It wasn't his kids that bought the team, so um, his kids have kind of inherited this role. So it kind of makes sense that, especially when he's he's no longer here, uh, you know, they might have different interests. They might not want the responsibility of owning a major league team and they would rather just wipe their hands clean of the situation. So, um, I mean, I think it's possible we're going to find out. I agree with Tyler that I think there's 0% chance the Orioles are going anywhere. Uh, Baltimore has one of the best cities for baseball, uh, one of the best markets for uh, baseball. And, um, I mean, it would be foolish to move the team and try to build up a – you know, they would never be able to build up the loyal fan base uh, that they already have here uh, in any other city, um, especially not in any immediate future. So um, I think it just it, I'm not even worried about that. I don't think Oreo fans need to worry about that at all. Um, you know, we've been here since 1954 and I don't <laughs> think we're going anywhere. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, Eli, you want to go with your point? Yeah, I, I mean, I was just going to kind of continue on and ask, like, so, you know, we heard all this big hoopla about, you know, the Mets being bought by Steve Cohen, how he was, like, coming in saying the Mets are going to be a juggernaut again. You know, he goes out, gets Francisco Lindor. He's working on an extension. I, I mean, do you think that if the Orioles are sold, that that would have any implications on the on-field product? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think there's there's that possibility. I'm not necessarily interested, and I don't think Baltimore would adapt well to sort of that talking head, very public ownership <laughs> style. 
Uh, it's a New York thing for sure. <laughs> it's a New York thing, but also there's guys like Mark Cuban um, in Dallas. Yeah. Although he, you know, Cuban wanted to get involved in Major League Baseball. Jerry um, Jones. Jerry Jones in, in Dallas. It's definitely it's a very football thing. There's there's a couple of football. Al Davis used to do it with the uh, Raiders, and his son Mark Davis still does it a lot. Um, you know, I think Baltimore fans appreciate. You know, they've got a football team in the Ravens that Steve Bashotti has seen like once a year. You know, I think that's an ownership style that the Orioles fans would appreciate. Um, and, you know, we, we we care about quality on the field. You know, we've got a great stadium. The Orioles, you know, look, I, I've said this earlier. The, the, owner, the Orioles ownership group, for as long as I've been alive or as long as I remember, has been the Angelos family. And they've been willing to um, invest in the team. They've, they've, they've had really high south past. Teams have not always been good, but they've certainly always tried to get better. Um, and they're Baltimore based, born and bred, you know, you see commercials for the law firm all over town there. There's, you know, their names all over the place. It's a Baltimore uh, based company. And I think that that's what, you know, Baltimore people really appreciate. Steve Bashotti is another Maryland guy. Like it's tough to find an ownership group like that. Uh, you know, who, who would it be is kind of what my mind goes to. Cal Ripken's involved, but Cal Ripken doesn't have enough money to own a major league baseball team. You know, would it be Kevin Plank under I'm, I'm not sure where. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Uh, I think we'll probably get some clarity over this, this next year. So with the CBA being signed and this, um, the mass and dispute, I think is are two huge factors. I think even more than whether or not Peter Angelos is alive or not. Yeah. I, I think the one other point, I mean, you do bring up a good point, right? Um, I mean, if ownership does change, the Orioles game plan moving forward uh, could theoretically change. Um, Elias would not have a secure job in that scenario necessarily. Now, what I do think is he's going to demonstrate results and why would ownership change something that is working well? Um, There would be probably an Orioles revolt if uh, a fan revolt, if um, they were to shake things up and then things were to go south, right? Um, it's much easier for them to just keep Elias. And then if things go badly, you know, they just say, well, we inherited this and now we're going to make some changes, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't worry too much about the on-field uh, play uh, changing or um, you the front office basically changing in terms of decisions about the baseball team. I wouldn't worry about that too much, but it is at least a conversation now. Whereas while the Orioles uh, are owned by the Angelos family, that's not a conversation. Right. And I mean, look, we can't expect Michael Ice is going to be the Orioles GM for the next 30 years. It just doesn't happen very much. You know, Brian Cashman has been with the Yankees forever, but like even a guy like Theo Epstein is he's bounced around and now he's not even in, in uh, he's not a GM anymore. You know, these there's really good GMs that leave jobs sometimes. So, you know, you're right that Michael Ice might leave, but I'm not sure if that's necessarily going to be impacted by an ownership group. I think most of the time ownership changes don't impact the play on field too much, especially in that first season or two. Right. I think they want to get in there, get their feet wet, get right. used to the water and then maybe start making some decisions. Exactly. Yeah, they're not going to come in and just start changing everything immediately. I mean, even Elias, uh, what, the first trade deadline he was in charge went by and he didn't really do anything. And it took him a while to actually start making decisions. And that, that same principle applies to ownership most of the time.
Yeah. So yeah, I think it's definitely a possibility, but they're going to be in Baltimore, so don't worry about it. Yeah, that's that's my conclusion. <laughs> really, all I care about. Exactly. Um, okay, so anything else to add on that? We're going to just move on to some quick notes around spring training. We'll get to some actual baseball stuff, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, John Means was named the opening day starter. Did that shock all of us? Basically, no. I was blown away personally. Um, I'm. I mean, so Means. This is the second year in a row. Means has been named the opening day starter. He didn't get to make the start last year. It was Tommy Malone, former <laughs> Oriole great, that made the opening day start last year, which feels like a joke, but it it's is not. a joke. <laughs> Funny. It has to be a joke. Hey, then we got two prospects, or the Orioles. Sorry, not we. I'm not on the team. The Orioles got two prospects from the Braves for him. So who's laughing now? Yeah, um, yeah, that's laughing. awesome. Joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's awesome um, for John Means. I think I'm excited about the season he's going to have. I think he's shown me enough at this point. There's enough talent there that I think maybe he's not an ace, but I think he's like a good mid rotation piece on a good team. You know, I think he's putting himself in position to be uh, an important cog in this Orioles uh, machine. Um, okay, the, the next one is a little bit more of a bigger deal, I think, is Brandon High has confirm, confirmed that he is going to go closer by committee, at least to start the season. So no Cole Salser coming in the night. Well, he might come in the ninth inning, but it's not going to be every single night. Um, so, Jesse, what do you think about the approach closer by committee? I think it makes sense for a team that doesn't have a clear closer. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> no I, th- I think that's basically it. Uh, we, yeah. So we got to experiment and figure out who's going to do it. Okay. But, but you like, you think that once we figure out who's good at it, we should have a dedicated closer eventually, not right away. Well, I mean, I, I always think that it can change, but if you find someone who is well-established in the role, who's doing a good job, who you can rely on to get the final three outs, you know, very consistently, then why why would you not do that? Okay, fair. Yeah. Eli? Yeah, to me, um, I mean, I agree with the approach off the bat like Jesse does, but I'm all for sticking with it. Uh, I, I think kind of the modern revolution in baseball is that you play like the odds of who is going to be the best pitcher against this hitter and the hitter after him and the hitter after him. And that is the only question. Y- you know, not like, well, what inning is it? I, I'm not too concerned about that. You you know, like your best chance to get a guy out is the guy that gives you the best chance to get a guy out. Um, So whether that means Tanner Scott comes in in the fifth inning, whether that means that, you know, Dylan Tate works from six to seven and Hunter Harvey, whenever he gets healthy, you know, Hunter Harvey could come in in the third inning. If that's like when we need, that might be an exaggeration, but when we need outs, you put in the best guy to get those outs. Um, I, I, I was going to say, you still, I mean, even though you're basically, what you're basically saying is true, you still have like back-end guys and middle relief right, right, people. Right. And the reason for that is when you get to the back-end guys, the better guys, it's deeper in the game and you're more sure and confident that you can win that game. So rather than putting someone in, you, you don't use your closer or your best relief pitcher in the sixth inning because there's still a lot that could happen. Uh, one of your future relievers could have a, an off night, ruin the game. Right. And then, but I, I mean, but then Jess, the question is like when you hit the sixth inning and it's like a three, two game, you're up, they're threatening. Right. Like the thing that gives you the best chance to win that game is getting these outs right here. Right. You, you, you know, so then I mean, that's where I say, yeah, like, you you know, if it's the Tampa Bay Rays, put in Nick Anderson. Like, you know, he's 
going to get mocked for the Blake Snell game. And that was an atrocity, of course, don't get me wrong, but like, that's the methodology is he is, you know, 96 coming from, you know, about 12 feet off the ground and you know, it's electric. So you bring him in when you need to get those outs and he was coming in against the top three in that Dodgers lineup. And it was the third time those guys were hitting and they said, we need to get these guys out right now, put in our best guy. There's definitely some merit to what you're saying. I'm not saying you don't kind of slot guys in in matchups and situations that are advantageous for them. Uh, what I am saying, though, is I think that you do have to balance that with using your best your best arms and, you know, making them unavailable for tomorrow or less available at the very least. You have to balance that with the unpredictability of the future innings. Uh, somebody getting three outs in the sixth inning with guys threatening is meaningless. If the middle relief, you know, if the not great middle relief pitcher comes in the eighth inning and blows the game, then now you have a situation where you've lost the game and you've used your best pitcher. So um, you use, I, you have- I think I think you have to, I, I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong or to never do that. But I'm just saying you have to balance uh, these two forces, and it, it is something to consider. Yeah, I mean, we're getting into a deeper conversation yeah. about, like, bullpen structure. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, you, you've got to use – the pitchers in your bullpen you've got to use at some point regardless. I'm a big fan of, like, the Andrew Miller 2014 approach where, like, you need an out in the seventh inning or the sixth inning or whatever, just go to Andrew Miller because you know he's going to get it. Now, it's also a playoff situation, which makes it different. It makes it different, yeah. But I'm t- they, the Orioles would do that in the regular season after they got, and that was different too because they got Andrew Miller, mm-hmm. and he was going to be a free agent after the year. So it's like just use him, right? Yeah, who right. cares? <laughs> Which is, you know, right? There's that's not always the nicest thing either. Right. But yeah, I mean, closer by committee. My opinion on it is, I think it's a good approach. Um, Tanner Scott would probably be the favorite if you're going to go with like a traditional mm-hmm. closer. I think he's the best pitcher in the bullpen, whether Hunter Harvey's healthy or not. I think it's Tanner Scott. But yeah. Closer by committee. We'll see how it goes. Um, he throws 100 miles an hour, from, and that yeah. stereotypically fits with the description of well, a closer. And, and he he's also, a lefty. He also figured it out last year. Right. He was right. really good last year. Prior, and he, you know, he'd been good, but had struggles. So I think he's he's really good. We'll see. He could be like, you know, he could be the Orioles' uh, All Star representative. I could see that very yeah. realistic possibility for sure. Um, uh, Michael Franco, Franco, I immediately. Michael Franco. <laughs> for the Orioles and actually had a bomb. Uh, so, you know, what are we thinking about Franco? Have have our opinions changed on uh, if he's making – you still think he's yeah, making yeah, – yeah. Okay, Eli, has your opinion changed at all? Do you think Franco is now going to make the opening day roster? And if he does, is Ruiz making it with him or is he in place of Ruiz? What do you think? So, you know, at this point, we, we have still only seen a couple days of him. That being right. said, like, He's looked really good right off the bat. So uh, the the needle has been moving. I would say it's hovering right over 50-50 for me as to whether he'll be on the opening day roster. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, I was watching him in that second game he was playing, and he put that ball about 420 feet to left center. It looked effortless. He's looked solid at third base. I think that, 
Yeah, you know what I'm going to say. I, I think he's on the opening day roster, and I think Rio <laughs> Ruiz is not on the opening day roster. Wow, okay. Yeah. See, that's big. Uh, I mean, look, he even yeah. had a quote. I think the reporters asked him afterwards, like, are you ready? And he's like, uh, yeah, I'm ready. No question about it. <laughs> but what I will say is he also had – there was a pop-up where him and Adley Rushman were going for it in that game, oh, and, it just, that. and it just dropped. Now, was that Rushman's fault? Was that Franco's fault? Was that two guys who have not really played together miscommunicating? I don't know. There's definitely some defensive concerns. I, I don't think that play is going to. No, 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 no. Yeah, right, not that right. play. You're just saying it's a manifestation. Of yeah, it's, his ability. he's not a good yeah. fielder. We know that. Right. Now, a pop up, even the worst fielders can catch pop ups. <laughs> right. In the major, Most of the, in the time. major leagues. Yes. In the major leagues. Right. Um, but I still like, still the fact that that clause is in his contract, that he can start at the alternate site, and the Orioles are so big on roster flexibility. You know, now that Chris Davis is probably going on the IL, DJ Stewart might be going on the IL. We'll talk about that in a second. That does open up a roster spot where you could have Ruiz and Franco on the team at the same time, because I guess why not? But I'm still going to say Franco starts at the alternate site, just because I've already said it in my lineup, basically. So let's just stick with it <laughs> right. double down. I have Ruiz in my lineup that won our little poll, so I look right. ridiculous. But Tyler, the one thing I want to ask you, like, you know, you're talking about roster flexibility in terms of Rio Ruiz staying on. Like, what does that gain you? I mean, if, you know, assuming that he's going to be booted off whenever Franco is ready at the alternate site, what flexibility does that gain you in your eyes? Well, I think what it gains you is, okay, we can we can keep Rio up here. And if there's an injury, maybe we just do keep Rio up here and we can move that person to the injured. I think the Orioles do a lot of that where it's like, let's just stand pat as long as we possibly can (laughs) until we have to do something. Because like, you know, cutting Rio Rio Ruiz or not is not, it's a move on the margins. It's not going to win the Orioles more games. Really. It's not going to lose them more games. It's sort of like a, we know what he is. We know he's a capable major league third baseman. Maybe maybe they like his defense better than a Ryland Bannon or maybe even a Jemai Jones right now at third base. So the Orioles might say, you know, we could have one of those guys. We could bring him up. But really, we'd prefer if we're going to have either if we're going to have to go without Franco's bat for some reason, we'd rather have Rio's glove and his bat combination than Bannon or, or whoever it might be. So I think it's literally just like it's the tiniest bit of flexibility, but the Orioles are very into that, I think, no matter right. what. Um, th- like they haven't said anything about what Chris, what's going on with Chris Davis for like ever, because basically what it's going to do at, at the end of spring training is it's going to open up a 40 man roster spot. That's what it's going to do. So why are they waiting so long to do that? I, I think it's just going to be a last minute thing. Then they can sneak, you know, somebody on, maybe it's Connor green. I don't, I don't know. They're trying to sneak somebody onto the 40 man roster. Um, right. and they're waiting until the last second to do it. So yeah, that's my opinion. All right. DJ Stewart. Uh, he is in my opening day lineup. But he is still not playing in games. He is playing um, on the backfields, I believe, doing some some drills and things. But he's not playing in games because Brandon Hyde has said that he does not want to put him in a game until he is 100% and, and can run at top speed. So is DJ Stewart going to be ready for opening day? Not if he's going to be on the line in, on the roster. Right. But do you think, like, physically he's going to be ready? Well, it's less likely he's ready than yeah. Broncos ready. That's yeah. probably true. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very pot. I, I think I didn't have him in the opening day lineup. I don't, I don't think he is going to be ready. Um, so, I mean, we'll have to wait and see, but um, if, 
we're this late into into spring training. Uh, act that he's still not playing yet is not a good sign in terms of his chances. Of I mean, he did play some games early. Mm-hmm. He did play. He has played in spring. Right. He's played more recently than Chris Davis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not that that says a lot. <laughs> Uh, okay, Eli, what do you think about the DJ Stewart situation? Yeah, I kind of agree. Actually, like Hyde in that same interview even said it himself. He said like he needs to get some game time before he breaks camp with us. And he said the window for that is closing. Um, so, you know, whether he's like physically ready and could play in a game, I, I think at this rate the Orioles are just going to have to uh, I mean, they'll probably throw him on the 10-day IL and just bring him on slow, make sure the hamstring is fully good, and then I think he joins the Orioles in early April. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. I, I think the Orioles really want his bat on the roster. So I, I think that could be a move that, yeah, you put him on the IL for a bit and uh, you bring him up because I think he does add he, – he lengthens the Orioles lineup. I like his bat right. um, in the lineup a lot of days. I, I think it was Mike Petriello – um, who just put out an article about like seven hitters you've never heard of that you should watch. Uh, and DJ Stewart was one of them, which was pretty interesting to me, but he talks about like Stewart's uh, ability to barrel the ball. You know, he hits the ball hard. He talks about his ability to draw walks. He talks about how absurdly often he strikes out, which is definitely true. Um, but he, yeah, he says he's got a legitimate shot to break out and, you know, We've talked about him on the warehouse pod. Come follow us as a three true outcome guy. Uh, and, you know, yeah, I think he's definitely got potential there. I agree, Tyler. Yeah. So it's a hammy and they're going to get it hundred percent right. And then I think he's going to spend uh, the whole season with the Orioles once he's, if he's healthy, which has been a huge issue in his career, but um, yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. And then of course, Chris Davis, we just talked about him. Uh, Brandon Hyde says it is a possibility, which he said a lot, um, that he hit, that he heads to the 60-day IL. Um, do you want to talk about that? Do you care at all? I mean, not really. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it it's very predictable that this is this is his current situation. Um, I mean, I, I really think it's a matter of time until he's released permanently. So I saw something interesting on that, or I was reading something about how, like, because the CBA is getting renegotiated mm-hmm. and all that stuff, there may be some sort of like finagling the Orioles can do with the contract mm-hmm. to get out from under it or pay a smaller <laughs> portion of it. So uh, that could explain why he's sticking so around. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it explains why, like, we have no idea what's going on with this specific injury, but I think it explains why he's not gone yeah, entirely. And like last year, the Orioles got some. They they basically didn't have to pay him as much last year because it was a shorter season. Salaries were smaller, so like, there's that whole element. So right? would it be possible that the Orioles come out worse though after the negotiations? What do you and would have to pay him a little bit more? I, I don't think they have to pay him more because uh, okay. they've already signed the deal. Right, right. They agreed to the contract. Right, right, right. I, I'd have to find the article or whatever yeah. I was reading exactly, but I believe that's the my understanding is like the CBA is up after this year, and there's some redoing that that could be done to uh, get some money off the books. Um, yeah. Chris Davis, whatever. I, I think he needs to go to the IL, open up that 40 man spot. Eli. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing to me is like, we've seen, I, I don't know. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but like we've seen that when the Orioles want to bring someone up, you know, when they want to make something happen, Chris Davis, just like I don't know, some <laughs> ligament on him pops, you, you know, something <laughs> just happens. And all of a sudden, oh, no, he can't 
play. And he goes to the IL and he just kind of disappears. He was gone for the whole like last month of, you know, last year's season. And yeah, like, do I think that his back is hurt? Like, okay, maybe he tweaked it. Do I think that it's being laid on super, super thick? And do I think there's some kind of gentleman's agreement that he will, you know, stay quietly off to the side and, you know, get paid his salary and we'll be able to use the roster spot for more productive stuff. That's the only explanation to me right now. Like, I wonder what's in that for Davis though, to be like, yeah, I'll just, just, I don't know, go do rehab for a couple months instead of. He stops like tarnishing his name. You know, like every second he spends out there hitting 140, it is just more time (laughs) that people look at him and, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think though, I guess that is fair because at this point, I think it's it's become like an accepted thing. It's not even funny anymore. It's just like, right. yeah, he's legitimately, if not the worst player in baseball, a bottom five player in baseball, and he also gets paid a top like fifty salary. In so, it is what it is. But it's so far beyond that. I, I mean, at this point, you know, like with the with the amount that he plays, it's pretty easy to argue he is the least productive player in baseball. <laughs> Maybe ever, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, and maybe ever, you know, because there's just, like, there's no way to avoid giving him some playing time when he's healthy. And, and, you know, like, he had, what was it, the 65 at-bats without a hit? Like, it's the longest streak ever. Yeah, it's a joke. Yeah. (laughs) It does have to be repeated. Nobody else gets 65 hitless at-bats. You know, they get to 20 hitless at-bats, and they say, you're off the team. Right. I mean, it's it's insane because it does need to be repeated because we do forget about it because it is just so it's just an accepted fact that the Orioles just have happen to have what might be the worst baseball player. Not not ever because he did have some really good years, but just just these last like three seasons. It's like the worst three seasons ever. And there's some like dead ball guys that would hit. (laughs) Just like the most atrocious stat lines ever. Go back right. 100 years and look at some of those stat lines, and he's, like, worse than them. And they were, like, spitting on the ball and, <laughs> yeah. you know. And the gloves were, like, I don't know. The gloves didn't have fingers. They were just, like, a right. piece of leather. Yeah. It's absurd. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, and, I mean, in, in all seriousness, though, it it really is, like, a sad thing to have watched his decline because, like you you said – he was a great hitter um, for several years and was a a big part. Yeah, exactly. And was a big part of the Orioles success. So, um, I mean, this is just, uh, I mean, he's totally unrecognizable when the rare times he is on the field from his, his former self. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the very few players, like, I don't know. I don't say this lightly either because I, I don't ever buy into the, you know, you people think like the pros versus Joe's thing. Like, yeah, I could go do that. I could go, you know, I could go out there and hit a three or I could kick a field, a 30 yard field goal. Like Chris Davis legitimately puts up batting lines that I don't think maybe any of us could do, but like, I think you could take any division one college player right who's not good and right. he could go into the majors and, and put up the batting line that Chris yeah. Davis does. Like it's, it's. Or it's a double A player. Or, well, yeah. Yeah. Anybody who's less than a major league level player but plays competitive baseball, we're qualifying this a lot. Right. But yes, I think yes. <laughs> I think could, right. could do what, what Davis does. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're gonna get out of here. What what we want you to do though is uh, go follow us 
at the warehouse pod on Twitter, Instagram, uh, facebook.com slash the warehouse pod. We have a Twitch as well um, at the warehouse pod that we might use for some live streams this year. Um, and also go subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, and we're also on Substack, the warehouse pod.substack.com. If you don't like to mess with podcast stuff and you just want to get the podcasts emailed to you, uh, that is the way to go there. And we also are, are going to start putting out some written content on occasion, but it's still mostly going to be um, the podcast. So check us out there. Uh, Eli, where can people specifically follow you on social media? Me specifically on Twitter, I'm at Elijah Ginsburg, E-L-I-J-A-H. And on Instagram, it's at Ginzy55. Yep. And Jesse, how about you? And people can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Juggernaut8678. Uh, that's J-U-G-G-E-R-N-A-U-T-8678. Very nice. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Ty Young. And also go to CamdenChat.com, the big, one of the big Oreo blogs out there. And I write a couple articles a week there, and that'll be heating up a little bit more as the season gets going. So check us out there. Um, next week on the podcast, we're going to do a season preview special. Cha, cha, cha. Yeah. I don't know. That was like sound effects that I put in. Um, we're going to make Maybe predictions on to let huh? someone else do the sound effects. Yeah, as- we'll put it in post. We'll put it in post. <laughs> we won't do on, on a live episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're going to have a season preview episode on our podcast. Um, we're going to do win-loss project projections or predictions rather, um, maybe some award winners, and we're going to evaluate the roster decisions because by that point, uh, the Orioles opening day roster will be finalized, I believe, because opening day is one week from tomorrow. I believe it's a Thursday, which is a little weird. I think they've been, they've been doing that recently. Um, yeah, I think that's everything. Yeah, right. But yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us here on this very special edition of the Warehouse Podcast. Also follow all the Birdland Tonight stuff. We're going to be contributing to that throughout the season inter- intermittently. Eli, did you want to make a point about something? Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, additional thanks to Josh and all of the folks yes. you know, helping to put together Birdland Tonight the dudes at section 336 they do a great job as well so um thank you for having us yeah absolutely josh did all of this stuff we did absolutely none of it except record these 90 minutes of an episode so josh huge shout out thank you for for all of that stuff um yeah check out at birdland um birdland tonight and at birdland sports on twitter and instagram and twitch to get all of that stuff but um yeah until next time we are the warehouse podcast i'm tyler i'm jesse and I'm Eli. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.